Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Hi, and welcome to System Reboot, a podcast from Gizmodo where we dive into the systems that are failing us and explore realistic opportunities to create something better. I'm Brian Kahn, the managing editor at Earther. And I'm Alex Kranz, senior consumer tech editor at Gizmodo. And today, I guess we're going to be learning about the internet and climate change and how they are more related than I initially assumed. So you thought they were not related, is what what you're saying? I, I thought they were sort of related like not as related as cars and climate change maybe as related as like cow farts and climate change wow i mean cow farts are very related to climate change are, okay i don't know then i just thought that they were like tan i thought it was like yeah this is something that's like part of it well it is and i actually you know what I did a little research here, Kranz, and I have some bad news okay. for you and I. <laughs> well, so I, I took a look at Gizmodo's carbon emissions uh-huh. because, believe it or not, our website emits carbon. But it, like without a car. Without a car. Well, I don't know. Maybe our, our website is powered by a car. Maybe. I don't know. But I have bad news, which is that our carbon emissions at Gizmodo are extremely high. Oh, no. Um, because of the car. Because yeah. we're running it off of a car. <laughs> maybe. I mean, I don't know, like, actually. Our, our, our servers are just plugged into somebody's like Subaru. I mean, if... It's a possibility, although it feels like it may be more of a hummer. Um, I took a look at this website carbon calculator okay. that basically like does a bunch of like calculations on what kind of power, you know, how long it takes your web pages to load and how much code there is and all this other stuff that actually sort of requires energy to do. Um, I took a look and gizmodo.com was worse than 83% of the web pages they tested. Oh, that's bad. That's, I mean, yeah, it's like that means that, that the website I had when I was like 16 and I ran on like the AOL homepage that was just my ode to Scully and Mulder, it's probably <laughs> like way less of an impact, right? Hopefully. Oh, yeah. I mean, I have two, two, first thing, does that page still exist? Because I would love to visit it. You, I, no, definitely not. You <laughs> okay. can't find it, I swear. <laughs> uh, I'm going to Google it after this. But second, <laughs> Those pages back in like, I mean, I don't want to date Ukraine's, but I guess it was a while ago. Is it what was we'll a while say. ago. It was a while ago. And, you know, back in the day, like web pages, there's less stuff on them. They loaded faster. And so that put less of a strain on um, basically on the climate because there's just less energy to load the pages up. But unfortunately, now we're in an era of lots of fancy web pages that produce lots of carbon. And apparently we write for one of the worst offenders. So. Oh no, that's that's not great because like I, I changed my lights and everything. I try to be climate change conscious. Well, I appreciate the effort, and you know maybe this is something we can talk about with uh, the powers that be at Gizmodo. But also, I think you know it points to the fact that we have much bigger problems at play, which is the fact that you know we're working at home now, everyone's on the internet, and we got to figure out a way to make it a little bit less carbon intense. And so okay. I think that that's what we're hopefully going to learn about today. Okay. And we're talking with somebody we both actually know today, right? Yeah. Maddie Stone, who is the former managing editor of Earther. And she was the former science editor at Gizmodo. And now she's just out there constantly writing incredible stories that I only half read because they get depressing 
about climate change and the internet. <laughs> like I, she's she's an expert on this subject. She's an expert. I would maybe not mention the half read part to her, but I'm really <laughs> excited to talk with her about just everything that's going on with our internet use, both in terms of like the impact that the internet is having on climate change and in turn actually how the internet could be impacted by climate change. Okay. Um, so we're going to learn about all that stuff today and potentially a couple ways that we can start to fix the mess that we're in so that Gizmodo sucks a little bit less, but also so the internet sucks a little bit less. I am absolutely pumped to be less destructive to the environment. So let's go talk to Maddie. All right. Sounds like a plan. Hey, Maddie, how's it going? Thanks for joining us. Hey, Brian, going pretty well over here. Hey, Maddie. So nice to have you back in the Earther Gizmodo fold. <laughs> Very excited to, to be chatting again um, about some salient topics yes. to both Gizmodo and Earther. And getting into the remote vibe over here with Zoom. <laughs> yeah, totally. We've got the whole, you know, it's a little different from our usual means, but, you know, it feels like old times in a certain way. So thanks for being here. For sure. So, you know, we, uh, we wanted to bring you in today to talk about the internet and specifically the internet and climate, which I think, you know, for a lot of folks, maybe that's not their first thought when they think internet, they're like, oh, like I watch YouTube videos and hang out, but the internet and the climate are, are pretty connected. And I wonder if you can kind of spell that out for us a little bit, you know, particularly like how is internet infrastructure affected by climate change? Sure. Yeah. So I'm really glad you're spotlighting this topic because I do think it's one that doesn't get the attention it deserves. And um, I would say there's a number of ways that the internet infrastructure, the infrastructure underpinning the web is affected by climate change. And this all has to do with the fact that while the web might seem like this vast, intangible thing, it's actually underpinned by an enormous and enormously complex network of physical infrastructure. So there are the data centers that house all of the servers that host the web. There is fiber cabling buried along the ocean floor and spanning continents that sort of directs our internet traffic to and fro. Then there are mobile networks. There's cell towers and cables and antennas underpinning mobile internet and cellular networks, which have become sort of a critical tool for emergency response during wildfires and other forms of natural disasters. And all of this infrastructure is vulnerable to a variety of effects from climate change. So one area that I think has received a little bit more attention is the impact of rising sea levels on that cable infrastructure I described. So because populations tend to be centered along coastlines. That's where most of our densest urban areas are. That's where a lot of our fiber infrastructure and network nodes have historically been built out. And that is making that particular type of infrastructure increasingly vulnerable both to rising sea levels and surge from things like hurricanes and large storms. Storm surge, as you know, is also being amplified by rising sea levels, so it kind of creates this double whammy situation. Best of all worlds. Best of all worlds. <laughs> it's the worst of all yeah, worlds. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the worst of and all so worlds. And this, so this got a little bit of attention a couple of years back when a study, I believe it was published in 2018, found it, it was looking at fiber infrastructure deployments in the United States and kind of matching maps of cables along coastlines with projections of sea level rise from the National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration. And it found that within the next like 15 years or so, 
something like a fifth of all of the deployed metro fiber cables underneath cities like New York and L.A. could be permanently submerged underwater. So a lot of fiber infrastructure is potentially about to go (laughs) under. Um, And also a lot of these so-called network nodes where cables rise out of the ground and then traffic is sort of routed around within cities, according to this study, are also expected to be swamped. And it's not really clear how much of a disruption this will cause. These cables are often built to be water resistant, but not necessarily waterproof and not designed, as the study pointed out, for permanent submersion. So that (laughs) seems bad. Um, (laughs) It could be really bad, but it could be just like really annoying. It could be really bad or it could be really annoying. Yeah, exactly. And it could be like the worst thing in the world. Right. And, And then kind of getting back to what I was talking about a moment ago, in addition to sea level rise, there's also hurricanes and the surge associated with that. And that kind of creates an added layer of of challenge on top of it because you might have an event that sort of wipes out an entire region's internet infrastructure by permanently submerging it and preventing it from being kind of accessible and repairable for days, if not weeks. So that is, that's a pretty serious concern. Still unclear, as as you point out, Alex, whether this is going to be like an apocalypse level event for the internet or just like an increasing <laughs> headache in the years to come. So that's kind of fiber cables and the story with them. Something else that has caught my eye recently that I think is really interesting and concerning is the growing impact or concern about the impacts of wildfires on mobile networks and wireless infrastructure. So this is a different kind of set of internet infrastructure, the cell towers and antennas that transmit wireless data. And so these are really important for disseminating emergency alerts and evacuation orders and updates during a natural disaster type situation. And over the last month or so, I've been chatting with a researcher, actually one of the same guys who did the sea level rise study, who's been looking into wildfires and their effects on mobile infrastructure. And it's basically a bad situation waiting to happen. I mean, we've already gotten a taste of this out west in recent years with the 2018 California wildfires, which were so bad, the Camp and Wolseley fire in particular. So those fires tore through very urbanized areas and knocked out hundreds of cell towers. And so this creates a huge problem for emergency response, because if you're dependent on your cell phone to get an evacuation alert, suddenly you're in the dark. And so that infrastructure is mostly above ground as opposed to the cables, which are buried below ground. And so it's more potentially at risk from something like a wildfire, which is sort of sweeping across the surface. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of weird when, you know, when you're out west or you're in the forest, you often see those like cell phone towers like disguised as trees that are not really like well disguised, but they paint them like kind of green and brown. And those are actually potentially, I guess, in harm's yeah, way. Yeah, um, exactly. Kind of nice to try to- and, and it's not just the cell towers themselves. Just one more thing I would add is the electric grids that power them. So as we've seen over the last week with this incredible heat wave kind of torching California right now, grid operators are increasingly having to shut things down and, and create these temporary blackouts in order to prevent more widespread outages. And so that's another compounding threat. Yeah, I mean, it's even something that, you know, I dealt with, well, maybe all of us dealt with here um, as well in like, because a couple of weeks ago, I'm trying to think, when was this happening? Time is just a mystery to me. <laughs> um, but during the tropical storm that hit New York in the mid-Atlantic, power went out for you know, millions of people. And 
I definitely experienced the fact that power went out and then my phone also lost signal for a pretty substantial number of hours. Exactly. Uh, so I was like, All right. yeah. And if, if you're dependent on that phone for, you know, evacuation orders in your area, that is a real problem. Yeah. Cause I, I mean, used to always having like a little radio, right. Cause I, like I lived in a really tornado area as a kid. So we always had a little radio that would immediately be like, you're all going to die. <laughs> Run for cover. <laughs> And I, and I like as we're talking about this, I'm like, oh wait, that doesn't exist as often anymore. Like my mom right. may still use it or something, but but nowadays, no, I use I look to my phone. My phone is where I get all of my alerts, and so like right, and and not just you, I would add, but also like first responders. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, like oh, the, that's that's much more terrifying. Like the guys who are out there fighting the fires. Yeah just won't be able to Exactly. I mean, I think there, Alex, you might know about this better than I do, but I I feel like there was an incident that occurred a couple of years back in California where Verizon actually throttled data to some wild firefighters. There was, that's right. That was, I think it was during that really big fire um, season last year or the year before that they just, they started throttling everybody. And then they're like, oh, oh, we're sorry. We didn't mean to throttle like first responders. (laughs) And then, they kept throttling and it was really, really messy for them because they were like, well, then we have to unthrottle everyone. And it was a whole mess. But yeah, they, they do not view themselves as a public service, despite being a public service we all need. Very much being an essential public service and increasingly so in the age of fires everywhere all the time. Yeah, I, the mean, whole well, world I, I remember too, because I think after that, Verizon also had the, the gall to like come out with like an ad that was, <laughs> you know, being like, oh, we really support the first responders. And I think it was, you know, damage control for them. But I was like, oh my God, you've got to be kidding me. Like you <laughs> did the exact opposite of that yeah. um, when there was a need for it. I think there's a real regulatory gap there because these companies, as you said, you know, don't see themselves as a public service and they're not being really regulated in that way. And right. So, I, I mean, I wrote a story for Grist about a month ago on some of these sort of policy challenges with the Internet and climate change. And one thing I looked into for this story is, OK, so to what degree are these cellular providers that are so essential to emergency response kind of considering the impacts of climate-related disasters on their infrastructure. And so I looked at their disclosures with this group called the Carbon Disclosure Project, which a lot of companies sort of report climate change risks to. And the big telecommunications companies like Verizon, T-Mobile, they all acknowledge that there is this growing threat to their infrastructure due to climate change. But as best I can tell, nobody's really doing anything about it. Hmm. So they know it's coming. They're just choosing to <laughs> to pass the buck uh, until they can't pass it anymore. Sitting tight for now. Yep. <laughs> that that makes sense. That makes sense. They don't want to spend any money until they absolutely <laughs> have to. Maybe somebody else will fix this problem for them and they'll be able to just keep breaking yeah. it in. Exactly. Another thing I've heard you talk a lot about is the carbon impact mm. of the internet. Because I, I know when you and I first talked about this years ago, you were talking, you were like, yeah, I'm going to be doing climate change and how it affects internet infrastructure. And like you said it, and in my head, I was like, oh, saltwater flooding data centers. <laughs> like that was my idea of like climate change and the infrastructure. And you were like, well, no, like carbon impact. And like, it is kind of a significant thing, these data centers. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Because right. it just blew my mind. 
Yeah, for sure. And so this is where it gets super interesting to me is like, not only is this physical infrastructure like existentially threatened by climate change, but it's actually part of the problem in the sense that the internet and as you kind of keyed in on their data centers in particular are very energy hungry beasts. And as we move toward sort of greater digitization of everything and, you know, something that the pandemic has only accelerated, I think all of us working remotely, requiring high-speed internet connections, we're going to be using these data centers more and more. And so if they are tied into fossil fuel energy grids and we're requiring more and more data center capacity, that is potentially a big problem for the climate too. So there's sort of been a lot made recently of this energy footprint of data centers. Um, Some early work by a researcher at Oh, I'm, I, I never pronounced this company's name right. Hawaii? Is that how you say it? Huawei? Thank you. Wow. I was way off. Um, <laughs> Thank you, Alex, for coming through. <laughs> I didn't know either. <laughs> the, the Chinese, the Chinese phone, phone and, and telecommunications. Yeah, yeah uh, Huawei. Huawei. Oh, thank you. Wow. I'm also probably saying it wrong. My, my, my Chinese friends always correct my, they're like, no, no, no. And I, for the life of me, can't hear. There's an extra syllable somewhere in there and I can't hear it. So, but I think for most of us, Huawei <laughs> okay. is, is well, okay. Clearly I butchered it, but thank you for correcting. <laughs> so some early work by a researcher at Huawei, um, a guy named Anders Andre, which has been widely cited on this, uh, essentially found that the energy used to power data centers, as well as all of our devices at home that are internet connected, and all of these like network nodes, all of that is collectively, according to his estimates, responsible for about 7% of global electricity consumption. And his early Ooh, estimates wow. found that that yeah. fraction is, is growing quite quickly. And so if, you know, as Amazon and Microsoft and Google are doing, we continue to build out data centers. Data centers themselves, I, I believe, are like 1% to 2% of global electricity consumption consumption, which might sound small, but I mean, that is on par with like the aviation sector. And we talk a lot about the, you know, we we talk a lot about the carbon footprint of flying and the climate impact of flying, but like data centers are kind of on par with that. And we just don't hear about them as much. And so if all of that infrastructure continues to be built out and tied into largely fossil fuel powered grids, that is potentially a growing source of carbon emissions into the future. Now, there's a couple of good sides or bright spots to this. Um, One of them being that data centers, while they have really large energy needs, they're very centralized. And so it is quite feasible if companies want to put the money into it to actually power data centers renewably, either by purchasing renewable energy credits on the grid or by building local renewable energy capacity and tying the data centers into that directly. And so this is something that some of the more climate PR conscious tech companies have been doing recently. (laughs) Uh, Apple made a big announcement a few years back about how it was powering its data centers 100% renewably. Concerningly, though, the really big players in the kind of cloud computing space, Amazon Web Services in particular, which I think is the largest player out there in this space and is quite quickly increasing its data center capacity, um, is not does not seem to be building out enough renewable energy to keep up with its data center growth. So that's a concern. 
And so it's just this question of, you know, if everything is going online and we're spending more and more of our time in the cloud, like, you know, is that going to be a big problem for the climate or are we going to kind of get out ahead of it and try to build out all of this infrastructure to be powered renewably? Well, I'm also curious about how, like, some of that is offset by people reducing their Mm. energy consumption at home. Because like, let's say gamers who are using these huge rigs with these, you know, thousand watt power supplies, just sucking this power down. Mm -hmm. If they're getting it all through NVIDIA or Google, they're not, they're not necessarily using that. So does that kind of offset it? Is that almost a credit in and of itself? Or is it, do you think that's going to be kind of negligible? That's No, that's actually a great question. And I believe there are some researchers who've been looking into this, like sort of local hosting versus hosting in the cloud and what the relative, you know, climate carbon impact of this is. I would say the jury is still out big picture on which is more or less energy intensive. Now, something that the cloud providers will say is that, hosting in the cloud is actually far more efficient than storing your data locally. And so Amazon likes to tout the efficiency gains of sort of migrating to Amazon Web Services (laughs) as a company over hosting everything locally. Um, There's a kind of nuanced counterpoint to that in that when you unlock greater efficiency gains, you are able to do more. So if all of a sudden you know, I'm able to stream 4K video because I'm streaming Netflix through the cloud. And maybe I'm just going to want to watch everything in 4K from now on. And that's going to be kind of a larger energy load than if I was watching at a lower resolution. So when there is greater efficiency, you unlock the ability to use more data. And that doesn't come for free. There's an energy cost to it. So it's this sort of paradox where, yes, cloud hosting might be more efficient on paper, but greater efficiency begets greater consumption. I mean, do we need like a do we need like a 4K shaming movement, like a flight <laughs> shaming movement? Like I mean you shouldn't be doing that. No, we cannot shame 4K. Please I'm just kidding. Don't. I love 4K. I need 4K. <laughs> I love it so much, but I would like it to not destroy the environment. <laughs> I will say two things on this. Number one, um, there was actually a study or an, a report that came out, I think it was a year or two ago, that was covered, we covered it on Earther at the time, on video streaming and Netflix and kind of the climate impact of all of this that sort of raised the alarm on how more and more online video streaming was leading to more and more energy consumption. There was also some pushback in wake of that report and sort of in wake of the ongoing narrative about like planetary heat death by data centers. So there has been some kind of counter research coming out showing that essentially these data centers and the the processors inside of them are like becoming vastly more efficient over time. And so they're able to handle higher workloads at like lower levels of energy consumption that they were in the past. And so there's this like great nerd debate going on right now about like whether greater cloud usage and like energy or data demands are actually going to lead to skyrocketing energy use or if these efficiency gains in the computer hardware are going to be able to keep up. 
Well, that's interesting because we are seeing like, like we cover the processor side of this a lot at Gizmodo and we are seeing that these processors are for the most part becoming more efficient, but it's that same thing you were talking about, greater, greater efficiency leads to greater consumption. Those, those, those processor guys see that and they're like, oh yeah, I'm making a much faster processor. This is so mm-hmm. great. And I'm using so much less energy. Well, if I use even more energy, I can make it even faster. And so it, like, I'm not sure how long we're going to see those gains or, or how quickly it's just going to rise again. Yeah, exactly. Um, there was actually a study out in science earlier this year looking at data center power consumption and kind of making this case that over the last decade, the energy demands of data centers had been relatively flat or only rise by a modest amount, even though the workloads or the amount of uh, you know data being processed through them was actually increasing at an exponential rate. But the authors sort of caveated their conclusions that we haven't seen this data center energy usage apocalypse yet with, well, we're not sure how long these technological improvements are going to continue into the future and whether they're going to be able to keep pace with projected increases in demand. Yeah, because those processors are reaching kind of their endpoint themselves. Right, right, exactly. And I, I, it's it's also important to point out that a lot of people in the world and even a lot of people in the United States don't really have access to all of this yet. And so there are a lot of people right. out there who don't have the benefit of a high-speed internet connection. And, you know, we want those people to have the benefits of all of this infrastructure, but that is going to lead to greater energy demands within this industry. And so it's kind of you know, on the companies that are building this infrastructure out to think proactively about that. Yeah, I mean, I think that that really raises, you know, we've hit on like this, like sort of all these different issues and they really do interconnect in such interesting ways, like because there is this movement and I think, you know, the pandemic has made even more clear that in a lot of ways access is, you know, a human right or it, it should be. Yeah. Um, given what we've seen so far. But then we also have, you know, these threats to both the infrastructure and the threats to the infrastructure in turn potentially poses to us as a, a climate problem. And so, I mean, yeah, I mean, how do we start to think about balancing those sort of three competing, um, well, at least somewhat competing sort of interests, I guess? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, again, a lot of it is going to come down to we've seen voluntary actions on the parts of these big tech companies that host these data centers, on the parts of these telecommunications providers that are responsible for all of our safety during natural disasters. We've seen some voluntary moves in the right direction, whether that's toward building renewable energy to match their data center consumption or agreeing not to throttle data for wildfire fight like firefighters <laughs> while they're fighting a wildfire. Um, but I, I think what the last few years of increasing natural disasters and more and more dire climate reports have really made clear is voluntary efforts are not going to cut it. This industry just this industry needs more regulation. And I think at a high level, policymakers really need to start paying attention to the climate impact of the internet and also the vulnerabilities that internet infrastructure faces and trying to figure out ways to balance the two so that we can you know, bring about a more equitable and just internet future where everyone has access to these digital tools and people aren't being left behind. I think, as you said a moment ago, Brian, one of the things that the pandemic has really exposed, I think, is this digital divide between people who have access to a high-speed internet connection and are able to 
send their kids to school remotely, are able to work remotely, are kind of living this cushy apartment-bound lifestyle versus the people who need to go into a job or the people who are out of a job but can't apply for a new job because they don't have the technological tools that they need to do that. And so this really is kind of, I see it as a climate justice issue in a way. I mean, we need everyone to have a high-speed internet connection. That's just sort of the direction our society is moving in. But we also need that digital infrastructure to be built in a way that doesn't cook the planet. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that's really, you know, it's interesting you say it as a justice issue. And I feel like, again, like that connection is probably new to a lot of listeners. I, I guess I should assume that. But I mean, it's definitely new to me. Like, I would not think of that. And then you say it and I'm like, oh, yeah, that makes total sense. Yeah. And I think, you know, it makes me wonder, though, like, you know, the Democrats in the House, at least, I guess it was in July, put out a climate plan, this big, humongous document that, you know, we did a couple of stories on Earth or about a few facets of it, but I thought there was a facet that you dove into that was really interesting looking at how they incorporated, you know, internet into this climate plan that they have, which is essentially, you know, meant to be, I think, in some ways, bits and pieces are supposed to be plug and play if they actually win the White House in November and win the Senate and hold the House, all that stuff. Like, it could potentially lay the groundwork for what our climate future looks like. And I, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about what was in that plan and how does it sort of line up with what you see as this justice issue? Yeah, yeah, sure. So as you said, it was this big overarching House Democrat climate plan for kind of how to decarbonize the, the Democratic vision for how to decarbonize the entire economy. So telecommunications and internet were one portion of that that I kind of wrote about in a story for Grist last month. I thought this was very interesting because, to my knowledge, there hasn't been like a big sort of policy vision document on climate change that also incorporates aspects of like internet resilience and digital divide issues. So I thought that was really interesting. And so the climate plans, what I would call the internet section, kind of breaks down into these two different components. The first one had to do with bringing about universal broadband access. And so broadband or like a wired internet connection is something I think most of us take for granted, but the FCC estimates that close to 20 million Americans don't even have the infrastructure in place in their area to access broadband internet. And so there is this big kind of gap there. And the, the folks who don't have access to broadband turn out to be kind of the same demographic that is especially vulnerable to climate change and climate change related disasters. These are people in low income communities, people in rural communities, disproportionately black and brown and Native American communities lack broadband access. And so the very same communities that are increasingly threatened by climate change often lack an internet connection that could help them become more climate resilient, whether that is to access disaster relief funds, apply for aid in wake of a disaster, or to sort of get alerts about natural disasters, or simply to you know, overhaul the way they work and the way businesses operate in these communities to be more climate resilient. So there's one portion of the plan that focuses on bringing about universal broadband access. And it's not really clear how that's going to happen, but the plan does highlight the fact that there was an infrastructure bill passed by House Democrats recently that would invest like $80 billion in broadband deployment across the country. So that is 
a really ambitious target. And the goal is to get basically everyone up to a high-speed connection within the next like 10 years or so, a high-speed fiber optic connection. So that's a very exciting piece of legislation that kind of dovetails with that goal. Not clear if it's going to go anywhere in a Republican-controlled Senate, but maybe something <laughs> that can be on the Democrats' priority list come November. I mean, it is worth pointing out that like, it is really important to like note that a lot of the people, you know, this in theory should not be a partisan issue, right? right. Like internet access is something that, you know, you're Democrat, you're Republican, you're independent, you're libertarian, whatever it is, like you need access to the internet. Totally, um, yeah. And it, it's kind of crazy to me that we can't agree. Like, you know, this seems like a no-brainer for everyone to be getting behind. Right, yeah. It's it's impacting, you know, rural Trump-supporting communities in middle America just as much as it is impacting low-income, democratic, kind of more urban communities. Well, and you see that, Trump is cognizant of that fact. Like he, he's repeatedly over the last, I think, two or three years, done kind of these these uh, I don't want to call them handouts to rural communities and their their internet infrastructure. Like he recognizes this as an issue that's important to his voters. Just I don't know if Republicans always all agree on that and certainly agree on a solution and agree for on the solution of sort of like a massive government spending program. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I, that sounds like not something most Republicans would want. Uh, so, you know, outside of what the Democrats are doing and what the Republicans would want to do, but certainly don't seem to be doing, what can we be doing mm. to, to kind of help with this issue besides voting and, and all of that? Is it lay my own fiber optic cable? Is that what I need to do? <laughs> get out there with a shovel and go for it? Lay my own fiber optic cables. Hmm, that is that is a great question. <laughs> um, well, I, I guess another aspect of this that is a little, perhaps might seem a little bit tangential, but um, really isn't is, so the digital divide isn't just about internet infrastructure. It's also about access to like hardware equipment. So this is a big thing that has come up in wake of, COVID is there being like not enough laptops for kids to learn remotely in schools. And I think there is still like a multi-million dollar like laptop shortage for K through 12 across America. The communities that are going to be most affected by this are the same ones that don't necessarily have a reliable internet connection. They're those lower income communities. And, you know, so a simple action that any of us could take is to donate an old laptop or computer. I think there's a lot of need right now and a lot of old computers that are in pretty good working condition, just kind of gathering dust in people's closets in their basements. Um, <laughs> wow, I feel really seen right now. <laughs> <laughs> so... Whatever you can do to sort of, you know, on a personal level, um, help help to bridge that that digital divide is is great. And then the other issue that this all relates to is right to repair. So having the ability to send your phone or computer into an independent repair shop to get it fixed at potentially a lower cost and greater accessibility than sending it back to the manufacturer really will go a long way toward bridging this digital divide, making access to technology more equitable. That is something that manufacturers have been fighting against for years, as I'm sure Alex knows well. They're, they're not fans, no. Well, what, But also speaking to like the climate change issues and what we're, we're facing with the infrastructure overall, what can we be doing to help with that? Is there anything that someone like mm. me 
or maybe not me because I'm a journalist and I'll be <laughs> writing about it, but someone who's not a journalist can be doing to help. A listener, perhaps. A listener, yes. Our dear listeners, what can they do? Well, I, I, you know, I think it really goes back to making your voices heard and whatever, whoever your preferred technology provider is, if you're an Apple user, an Android user, if you host your, you know, website and your company with Amazon Web Services, making it clear that climate resilience is a priority and that companies really need to be thinking about this or you're not going to be giving them your business anymore. I mean, that's ultimately what's going to drive change, you know, aside from sort of high level regulation and big government spending packages is consumer pressure. And so the more and more pressure we can put on these big tech companies to really put their money where their mouth is in terms of making real transformative change within their companies to increase access to digital tools for everyone, to harden their own infrastructure, to ensure that their vital services don't go out during natural disasters, you know, that is something that's going to, I think, in large part, be driven by consumer pressure. Well, since we're all going to be online forever, <laughs> I mean, you know, I guess we do. It's good to remember that, though. I think, you know, this is something that I think we often take for granted that, you know, we do have power in that regard. And yeah, you know, for me, I often forget, like, you know, I turn on the wireless and as long as it works, I'm like, all right, it's there. But there are ways to ask for the services to be better, even behind the scenes. So I think it's really helpful to be reminded of that. Absolutely. Just I like keep the it. pressure up. It'll, uh, it, I mean, these, these companies, you know, know that this is an important issue to consumers, to voters. I mean, we've just seen a slew of like climate plans and documents unleashed by like the big tech companies over the last two years. Like this is clearly a response to them reading the room and seeing that this is something people care about. And, you know, as the ambition level within those plans like ratchets up. I think it's important to look for where are the gaps and the and the blind spots and, and call companies out on those. Well, I think that's really oh, yeah. helpful. So you've heard that listeners go tell Jeff Bezos to <laughs> to clean up his act. Um, <laughs> tell Tim Cook to do a better job too. And yeah, let's uh, you know also get that laptop to someone who actually needs it. Um, the one hiding in your closet. Thank you for that reminder, Maddie. And thanks for joining us. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much. Oh, thanks, guys. This was really fun. listening to System Reboot. It's hosted by me, Alex Kranz, and Brian Kahn. Our producer is Michaela Heck, and Jamie Colazzo mixed this episode. If you like what you heard, and we really hope you did, what we'd really, really love you to do is give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts so that folks can find the show and tune in and hear some of the same stuff that you heard today. Yeah, and if you have any other feedback, preferably only positive, you can go ahead and, re- <laughs> you can go ahead and reach us anytime. You can tweet me at Alex H. Kranz or... You can tweet me at BLCon, and you can also send me the mean stuff, too. That's fine. I'll, I'll listen to it. Give him all the mean stuff. Send me only the nice stuff. And that's it for this week. We'll see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>